We want to thank you for tuning in to the Indian Run Christian Church podcast with Pastor Terry Bailey. This podcast can be found on iTunes by searching for Terry Bailey Ministries. Right now, let's get to Pastor Terry's insightful message. And again, good morning. It's been six weeks since I have delivered the Word of God, so you all are in for it today. Let me, uh, let me read again that short little passage that I had Mark to read. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but God weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. This text came to me in reference to an experience that I had whilst in Jerusalem, and uh, I, I kind of need to tell you a Bible story to, to get the whole gist of it. And the story is spread out through the book of Second Chronicles and the prophecy of Isaiah. In just a little bit, I will come in, uh, in to the 36th chapter of Isaiah and be following that narrative through chapters 37 and a little bit maybe into 38. So if you was to open up to Isaiah 36, you would be ready to follow along when the time comes to solidify all this. But I want to talk about King Hezekiah. Now, he is the king of the southern kingdom. If if you don't remember, in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom split because of Solomon's sins. And the northern kingdom became idolatrous right away and was institutionally idolatrous, following after the false gods of the other peoples. And Judah had its struggles, but remained a little more, most of the time, on the faithful side, but with notable departures. Hezekiah is king, laid in the process of the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem is. And he goes down in the record of the Bible as being a good guy, and one of the better kings because he tried really hard during his administration to correct the problem that the idolatry of the northern kingdom had spilled down into the southern kingdom and the people were worshiping the Baal gods and the Ashtoreth gods and the other gods and goddesses of the people. And Hezekiah set out to put an end to that and he was serious about it. He went, for instance, to the city of Lachish and I will come in a few minutes to tell you more about Lachish, but he went there and he took names and busted heads and he tore the little devotional idol space to Baal out of its nook in the city gates and he replaced it with a public toilet, a privy, just as an expression of what he thought of the whole Baal worship thing. He was serious. He cut down the sacred groves. He knocked down the altars on the high places. And he did everything that he could to eliminate idolatry in the kingdom of Judah. And at the same time, he poured lots of money into a project to reinstitute the long-neglected Levitical celebrations of Passover and Pentecost of tabernacles 
and the day of atonement, these things which were meant to draw and keep the people's hearts close to God and to remind them continually season after season of all the great things that God had done. So Hezekiah set out to destroy the worship of idols and to reinvigorate and vitalize the worship of God. And he got credit for that, even though in final terms his efforts failed. He was never able to completely root out the worship of idols And he had not been dead long before it came roaring back to its full strength. And his grandson Josiah had the very same job to do over again. The people never gave their hearts back to the Lord. Not fully. Oh, they went along for fear of punishment with Hezekiah's programs while they lasted. But they did not love and honor God. Well, Hezekiah gets credit because he gave them every opportunity. He was the watchman on the wall. He sounded the trumpet. He warned them, you think I'm being harsh on you now? I'm only doing this because you haven't imagined harsh until you see what God's going to do if we don't clean up our act. He sounded the trumpet. That the people did not respond to the alarm as they should have. That wasn't on him. That was on them. And so God said to King Hezekiah through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, Judah will fall for its sins. But for your sake, because of the works that you have done, it will not fall in your day or in the day of your children. And as it turned out, not in the day of his grandchildren either. Generations, if they knew enough to realize it, should have offered thanks to Hezekiah because it was only for his sake, this righteous crusader for God, that they got to live in peace and prosperity. Now what I want to say next, I need you to understand that I am not particularly wanting to to besmirch the reputation of Hezekiah. But how many of you realize this? We are all messed up. All broken. Our walk is not what it should be. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's decidedly worse. You know another king, David, on that day when he was not a king, when he was a youth facing the Philistine giant Goliath, he was totally confident in the power of the Lord God, but later, when he was a king trying to oversee a stiff-necked and stubborn people and he had made more than his share of his own mistakes and everything was so difficult, the responsibilities of managing a nation quailed his heart in ways that a Philistine giant did not and could not. David's walk was not perfect either. But Hezekiah's wasn't. And yours isn't. And mine isn't. And it always has the same root. We don't trust God 
enough. It started with our first parents and Satan was able to persuade them that God was withholding things from them and they did not in their heart really believe that God's plan was always only what was best for them. And it continues through all generations. We are led astray because we don't trust God enough. Lust or greed or fear. Some doubts that God is really in control of all the ultimate outcomes. And that it's all going to be okay for those who walk with Him. This leads us astray. Hezekiah, for all the good that he did, is criticized for two things in the biblical record. And they both have this root, not trusting God enough. The first criticism leveled against Hezekiah is this, that he showed the treasures of the temple to the king of Babylon. Well, you have to understand why he did that. He was worried about the Assyrians. At the moment, Babylon, his neighbors off to the east across the Euphrates River, were not an active threat, but the Assyrians up to the north were an active threat, and it could not hurt to have powerful friends like the Babylonians to help keep the Assyrians away from you. So I need to show the Babylonians, hey, I'm a friend worth having. Look at all this gold. Look at all this silver. Look at all this wealth. Look at all this. I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy to know. Judah's a good friend to have. Because he wanted help from Babylon because of the Assyrian threat. And he wanted help from Egypt because of the Assyrian threat. And see, God had already delivered word to Hezekiah. Judah will fall, but not in your day. Yeah, I know that's what God said. But man, those Assyrians are scary. And it can't hurt to have allies. Right? Right? Second thing that Hezekiah was criticized for. He says he built a wall and he dug a tunnel. And that apparently was worse. Because God was pretty harsh about his response to that. And I'll come to it in a minute. He built a wall, and he dug a tunnel. The northern kingdom, Israel, which was idolatrous from the beginning, fell just as God had prophesied that it would to the Assyrians about 702 years before Christ. And the Assyrians, for their part, also had their eyes on Judah. Why settle for taking half the country when you can take the whole country? And they always were watching. Judah is next. And about 20 years after the fall of the northern kingdom, Sennacherib, the current king of the Assyrians, set the plan into motion. And he marched his army down the Mediterranean coast, south And villages and cities and towns of Judea fell like dominoes before the Assyrian advance one by one. And then he came to Lachish. Now, I said I would tell you a little bit more about Lachish. Let me do that now. Way back in the day of Solomon, that king recognized the strategic importance of the city of Lachish. It sits in the gap 
that guards the best pass from the coast to the interior, that is where Jerusalem is. Lachish defended the pass by which enemies could come toward Jerusalem from the north and the west. And so Solomon enhanced the fortifications of Lachish. He built up the walls. He strengthened the gates and the gate system. He put in stations for archers and slingers and other kinds of defenders for the city. He built a garrison and kept a large military force there all the time because as long as Lachish stood in the gap, Jerusalem could sleep at night. Lachish, second most important city in the kingdom of Judah, second only to Jerusalem, also became a center of idolatry. Remember Hezekiah's toilet. And God pronounced judgment, and the Assyrians came to Lachish. And they surrounded it. Uh, A word or two about the Assyrians. Their own country was an agricultural haven, flat and wide open and good for farming, but hard to defend. So they developed a massive, fast-moving, very professional army. And they spread out in any direction they could, taking territory away from their neighbors so that they could find land with natural defenses, gaps that could be defended and those sorts of things. And the Assyrians understood and appreciated the value of Lachish just as Solomon had appreciated in his day. So this was a big deal for them, taking Lachish. And they did take it. Second thing about the Assyrians, they were mean. They were cruel. They were barbaric. And they were purposely so. They, when they got inside the city walls of a place that they were conquering, did the most horrendous things. And they did it to discourage rebellion in places they had already conquered and hopefully to encourage surrender in the next place that they were going to go so the people would say, oh my goodness, let's just give up the fight now because look what happens if you if you make them conquer you. The Assyrian relief, as it has come to be known, is a series of stone panels that King Sennacherib had carved to decorate his throne room about the conquest of Lachish. It was such a big deal to him. It went floor to ceiling. He wanted to remember this forever, how they conquered Lachish. And the stone panels carved showed the way that they built a siege ramp and how they dragged their big machines up it to knock down the gates and then it showed what happened once they got inside and there are pictures carved in stone. You can see these things. Uh, You can go to England and see them in the British Museum of Antiquities or you can take out your phone and call up the Assyrian Reliefs. It's that easy if you've got the stomach to see carvings of Babylonian soldiers who have stuck pikes in the ground and are lifting Judean soldiers up so they can and another picture where they have hung Judean 
soldiers by the wrists and are starting at the legs and skinning them alive. They were very artistic in capturing these moments. Proud of them. But this is what was happening at Lachish, the second most important and best defended city in the kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah is worried. I get it. I know what God said. The kingdom will not fall in my day. But but look what is happening over on the coast. And they are at Lachish. And it is not going well. Hezekiah is worried. He knows Jerusalem is in the crosshairs. And while he deals with Lachish, King Sennacherib sends a propaganda officer by the name of Rabshakeh who goes to Jerusalem and begins to spout propaganda in the hearing and the language of the peoples. Don't you trust in your defenses. They won't save you. We Assyrians have conquered places with better defenses. Don't you listen to your king Hezekiah. He's just deceiving you. He can't save you. Don't you even think about relying on your God because it's your God who sent me to bust your heads, which was a partial truth. And the people hear the Assyrian propaganda and they flock to King Hezekiah. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Hezekiah turns to the prophet Isaiah and says, What are we going to do? It's interesting what he says to Isaiah. He says, What is your God? going to do about this. If you're reading it in the narrative there, what is your God, Isaiah, going to do about this? And Isaiah says, he's already told you. The kingdom will not fall in your day, but let me make this plain. Sennacherib will not set foot inside the city walls of Jerusalem. Not going to happen. And God will send him home by the route by which he came. The word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah to King Rabshakeh returns to the Assyrian force and finds that the main army has been diverted by an unexpected rebellion over in Cush and has had to go off in a direction opposite Jerusalem to deal with those troubles and can't at the moment pour through the gap they just opened by the conquest of Lachish. But Rabshakeh sends others back to Jerusalem to say to King Hezekiah, Don't think you're off the hook, pal! I want you to consider the long list of other kings who are no more because they thought they could stand up to the Assyrian war machine and they all had God's buddy and they prayed to them and they sacrificed to them and they are dust and you are next. You're next. Oh, we've got this little problem to deal with it, but that'll soon be another king who is no more and you are next. And this time Hezekiah does not go to Isaiah. He runs to the temple himself and he does not talk about somebody else's God. He cries out, My God! My God! What are you going to do? And God hears the prayers of Hezekiah and he sends the prophet Isaiah who says to Hezekiah, Look, Hezekiah, we've already plowed this field once. But here is the promise of God. Sennacherib will not set foot inside the city walls of Jerusalem. God has promised this. Sennacherib will be sent back home by the very route by which he came. God has promised this. And now I'll add something else. As soon as he gets home, Sennacherib will be killed. 
It's not going to be a problem for you anymore. But since you have asked twice, actually three times now, we need a sign. So here's the sign. I'm going to give you a sign. I think the sign is just extraordinarily wonderful. Here's the sign. Don't plant any food this year or next year. And the people of Jerusalem should live on whatever the land produces. Here's your sign. You understand this, right? First, let me tell you, we read this all in a couple of chapters and we think it was all the work of days. That is not so. This whole story takes up years, years of time. And there are still a couple of years to go before we come to the conclusion of it. And in those two years that remain, Hezekiah is to see that the people of Jerusalem do not plant wheat or barley. Well, there will be olives because the trees are already established. There will be pomegranates because of figs and all this stuff. But you're not going to plant any grain. You're not going to plant anything else. You're going to live by whatever comes up, volunteer, whatever the land gives you. The normal process for standing up against a siege is to pile up food as high as you can pile it so that there will be lots of food when you're locked inside the walls by an enemy army. But the sign that God gives to Hezekiah is this, grow nothing this season or next. And let this be your assurance that you trust me more than you fear. Sennacherib. So one lesson in this is don't ask God the same question three times in a row. But the promise remains the same for the sake of the good works that you have done. Jerusalem will not fall in your day. And Sennacherib will never set foot inside the walls. And the Assyrians came and they besieged the city and God smote their camp with destruction. And no one in Jerusalem had to lift a hand. And the Assyrians woke up in the morning to a staggering number of unexplained casualties before a single blow could be delivered. And they went home by the route through which they had come back through the gap at Lachish, north along the coast. And Sennacherib was in a relatively short amount of time assassinated by his sons who did not further prosecute the war against Judah. And all of God's promises were kept. Sennacherib lived long enough to have those panels carved to decorate his throne room, and on them he made a big boast of the list of cities that he had conquered in Judah, including Lachish, which was his big prize. And then he ends his boast with this, And Hezekiah, him, I shut up inside the walls of his city like a bird in a cage. Well, you brag about what you can, I guess, because after you went home, Hezekiah came out and was free. And the kingdom did not fall but you brag about what you can. And then Sennacherib was killed. Okay, I've told the story. I'm ready to start preaching now. But don't panic. 
The sermon will take less time than the story. Remember the two criticisms that were leveled against Hezekiah. One was that he showed the treasures of the temple to the king of Babylon in an effort to get allies against the dreaded Assyrians. The other was that he built a wall. He called it a broad wall. It was broad. I have seen it. It's eight meters thick. And he dug a tunnel. And I've now waded through Hezekiah's tunnel, a marvel of engineering from a couple of millennia ago to bring the waters of the pool of Siloam into the city to help withstand a siege. And the wall, the broad wall, was built to stretch out the area away from the city to keep the Babylonian conflict further from the heart of things. And this is the word of the Lord. to King Hezekiah, through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. You counted the houses of Jerusalem And you tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you dug yourself a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made the pool. Nor did you take into consideration him who planned all this long ago. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die. Well, that seems kind of harsh. For building a wall and digging a tunnel. Because those things were done. Because in his heart, Hezekiah was not secure in the promise. I know what God said. I know what God said. But a new and bigger wall can't hurt, Right? I have seen Hezekiah's broad wall, as I said, eight meters thick, but what remains of it is about this tall. And not that long ago it was underground, buried after people had stolen back enough of the rocks that were used to build it up to its 30 plus foot height. Archaeologists found beneath it the flattened remains of the houses that Hezekiah seized in an act of eminent domain. People whom he put out of his homes and then knock them down and accomplish these projects at great labor and expense, even though God had already promised that Sennacherib would not set foot inside Jerusalem, would be sent back the way he came and would be completely dealt with. And I get it. That's a hard promise to believe in the face of what was happening. It's a hard promise to believe when the Assyrians, the cruel, hasty Assyrians, were actually parked outside your wall. I know what God said, but those Assyrians are scary. And the wall and the tunnel, that, that can't hurt, right? Well, if you know me, you know that I am not reflexively against building projects. Or improvements. I'm not against acquiring or saving money and resources. 
I am not against plans for the future, short term or long term. I am not against any of these things, not unless and until our plans become a substitute for our confidence in God and the promises that he has made. You see, here's Hezekiah's problem. A man's plans are always clean in his own eyes, but God weighs the motives. And he knows why you did what you did. And if it's because you don't trust him enough, that's a problem. If it's because you don't think he's really ultimately in control of everything that happens, that's a problem. If you are not absolutely convicted that his plans for you have been established from long ago and lead only to your ultimate blessing, if we really don't have that in our hearts and we think we have to go above and beyond what God has already promised in order to realize security, that's a problem. And God who weighs the motives of our hearts knows it. Now all that said, let me ask you a question. How many of you have plans? It's, it's good, good. I have plans. I got plans. Now you ask yourself a question. Have my plans crossed into that territory where they are a substitute for my confidence in the promises that God has already made? Because if that's the case, we need to scrap our plans and go back to faith in the promises of God. Elsewise, Life becomes an exercise in piling up stones that will never have any positive effect and building something that will only be tore down because it was useless until much later some guy like me comes along and sees the shin-high results of your labors in a line on a building that shows where what you built used to be. But it was also futile worthless let us not spend our lives piling up rocks and forgetting the God who made the rocks in the first place let us not substitute our plans for the promises that he has made us If this story and these words echo in your heart and produce a need for you to respond, we're going to give you an opportunity. I would tell you, and I, Mark, I hope you don't mind. Mark came forward in the 8 o'clock service and just said, I've been trying to fight my own battles of late and I need to learn to let God fight them for me. And don't we all? Don't we all, if faith and trust in God is not the bedrock place where we are, we're in the wrong place. We want to take a moment to thank all of you, our faithful listeners 
for setting aside time each week for the Indian Run Christian Church podcast. You can find out more about the church by visiting our website at www.christforeastcanton.com. That's www.christforeastcanton, all one word, dot com. On behalf of Pastor Terry and all the folks at Indian Run Christian Church, I pray God's blessing on you and your family.